2014. This is the Hermetic Hour, and I'm your host, Paul Runyon. Now, tonight, we're going to have as a very special guest speaker, Joe Carson, the leader of Ferifaria, and she will talk to us about the Eleusis and the mysteries of death and rebirth, and what happens to the soul after death, and what can be expected in the afterlife. Now, Joe is the, uh, she likes to call herself the leader of Paraphernalia. I refer to her as the avatrix of Paraphernalia, as more spiritual. Uh, Joe has written a new book, Celebrate Wilderness, Magic, Birth, and Love on the Paraphernalian Path, which includes a discussion of the Eleusinian Mysteries. Now, the mysteries of Demeter and her daughter Persephone were held at Eleusis in Greece for almost 2,000 years. Now, these mysteries had the goal of providing a first-hand experience of the certainty and the continuity of life after death. The mysteries were established around 1450 for this common era, uh, and uh, 2450, actually, 2450 before this common era, uh, and uh, ended only when the Roman Christian emperor Theodosius I forcibly closed them down in 392 of the common era. And they were centered around the myth of Demeter, the earth mother goddess, and her daughter Persephone. And in this story, Persephone was abducted by Pluto and taken to the underworld and eventually was able to return. Now, this myth provided a key to giving real revelations to the population of that world. Thousands of people journeyed to Eleusis each fall to experience the Eleusinian mysteries which means that hundreds of thousands were initiated. However, so tight was the secrecy, or so inexpressible was the experience, that no one has ever revealed its profound secrets. Now, tonight we will explore what is known, what is conjectured, and how Ferifaria honors the Eusinian experience. So, tune in and peek behind the veil of death. Now, before Lady Joe Carson calls in, uh, let me say that um, that I want you to hold your call-ins until after your questions, until after she finishes her lecture. That's the proper thing to do with a, with a college professor or with a you know guest speaker who's an authority on a subject. That's that's the proper thing to do, and. Um, the call in, though, when she's finished, if you want to call in, and please keep your questions on topic, and uh, keep them on topic and and and, uh, and apropos to to the discussion. Our host, our guest call in number is three four seven eight five seven one eight three zero. Now I'll repeat that three four seven eight five seven one eight three zero. But if you call in during the lecture, uh, yeah, we'll just have to put you on hold. Um, 
But uh, now let me talk a little bit about uh, Joe and Peripheria before she calls in. Um, Peripheria, it means, the name Peripheria means uh, celebration of sacred wilderness. And, uh, And it was established by Fred Adams, Frederick Adams, and Svetlana Buterin, his consort, back in 1968, and uh, as as a uh, unique neo-pagan goddess-centered worship of nature, and in its pristine form, a paradisial uh, vision, and if if draws its inspiration from uh, Robert Graves's The White Goddess and Robert Graves's work, and and from several other uh, works dealing with uh, the sacredness of, of nature and and the entire uh, beautiful beautiful contributions of classical paganism. And one thing I want to say about Peripheria that you should understand from the, the right from the beginning is that Peripheria was and is because it's still going elegant. Now it it came up during the psychedelic era, and so there was a number of what you would call what we call now the hippies that really uh, resonated with it because it was very, very much of a nature celebration and it was very uh, beautiful and poetic and artistic, but Peripheria was several cuts above the popular culture version of flower power. <coughs> and it was both both Fred Adams and Svetlana were both very, very cultured, very cultured people. I mean, they they uh, they were truly, truly uh, to the manner born and and their expression of this Ferrarian vision that Fred had and that Svetlana very much contributed to, that their expression of it was, was elegant and lyrical and poetic and artistic. And Fred was a was a magnificent artist. He'd been referred to as the American William and Svetlana had a beautiful singing voice, and 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 she was a, as actually Svetlana was a better writer than Fred, and and uh, so Ferrofaria's surviving rituals uh, are really to her credit. Um, their ceremonies, quite frankly, their seasonal ceremonies, uh, the nine royal passions of the year, which is by the way a portfolio of. Sacred Art, which we published, um, the Church of Medic Sciences published, and you can get on Amazon, by the way, and I just sent off a, a few copies to Amazon the other day. That's uh, Nine Royal Passions of the Year, uh, and that's Fred Adams' um, icon, iconic art for each of the each of the seasons. Um, and uh, this beautiful booklet that Joe has, has put together, this Celebrate Wilderness, Magic, mirth, and, and love on the Ferrofarian path. We have she's gone through several uh, preliminary copies of that, and I have uh, a couple of them. They're just absolutely beautiful, and she's going to, you know, make us aware of how we can get a hold of a copy of that that, uh, that book uh, tonight. 
So be sure and have your pencils ready when she gives you the information. That's a beautiful, beautiful book. And also, too, I might mention that um, that in our seventh rays, our journal, uh, which most of you regulars are familiar with, uh, our seventh ray journal, both the book one, that's the blue ray, and book two, that's the, the red ray, and book three, uh, which uh, of the seventh ray, which are also available on Amazon, um, feature articles by Svetlana and my friend. And, of course, the third uh, one, Fred's passed away in 1980, and Svetlana passed away a year after Fred. And so our third seventh ray, the green ray, has the requiem for for Fred and for and for and, and the description of Ferrifaria. So you can uh, you can actually see some of their writings and artwork in in our seventh ray journal. And and yet the nine royal passions of the year, and that's our that's our uh, um, CHS's contribution to Ferrifarian publishing, and that came out way back in 1969, first issue of it. So, um, the Eleusinian Mysteries, as uh, as we said in the abstract, they they began around 4, 450 BC, and this is so. This means that they certainly were influenced by the Orphic cosmology, which also initiate, which also influenced the Gnostics and the and the Initiatic Code, and whatever, and yet. No one really knows what it was that that the initiates experienced, and there have been a number of of, of uh, speculations about that. And we should have we should have Joe calling in just about any time now. And so at, at uh, here she is, Joe. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Good evening. Oh, wonderful! I'm just about I'm just about to to, to run out here. <laughs> and uh, anyway, here is Lady Joe Carson, and we we are very anxious to have you uh, proceed and tell us about the rights of abuses. Why, thank you, Polk. It's a real pleasure to be on your show, and um, thank you for the opportunity to talk with you tonight. Um, I'm I'm excited about the Eleusinian Mysteries, and I I find it's one of those rare passions. Every so often, I'll find someone else who's really excited about it. it. Seems like they're kind of one of those esoteric, like a fine wine. You find occasionally somebody that cares, and if they care, they care a whole lot. And then almost everybody else is like, "What What are you talking about? Like, what are you talking about?" So it is rare, but. But it's really exciting to me to be able to present it to people and to talk about it. And maybe maybe some of your people that are t- listening will uh, will also be among those people who are, are passionate about it and who would love to call in and might have questions or comments. And I, I'd certainly like to hear from them. Um, yeah. So I ask them to hold their calls until you get until you get finished because right. I know you have a right. prepared presentation. Why? Thank you. Okay. Um, I'm going to just say a few things just to kind of lay um, a little uh, kind of chronology just so we kind of are all on the same uh, turf here in terms of time, um, the, the, there was an agriculturally-based cult in what eventually became Greece. It was way before what, you know, the, the amalgamation of peoples that got together and, and created what we call you know, early or archaic Greece and then classical Greece. 
in uh, about 1450 BC, um, a lot of the more um, aggressive elements that had come into Greece from the northeast uh, went further across the sea over to Crete. And they invaded Crete. Crete was very vulnerable. Uh, they had a long and really beautiful civilization for several thousand years of uh, peacetime, but they had had a huge um, volcanic explosion of a nearby volcano on an island, which devastated, covered the, the island of Crete with layers and layers of um, ash and soot. So it was like a volcanic winter for Crete. And then um, they had a series of famines, and um, um, it's speculated that there was also um, tidal waves. So it devastated their fishing culture. It devastated their shipping. They had had a, a beautiful culture, which really got flattened. So they were quite vulnerable when these Greeks came over there, um, starting around 1500, sort of in slow and more and more waves. These particular early proto-Greeks were aggressive, and eventually took over completely. And, of course, we think of Crete as being a state of Greece at this time. It, it belongs to Greece. Um, so they did lose their independence. Um, what happened was there was a lot of interchange at that point, and uh, people who had been in Crete, some of them just plain needed to escape for various reasons. Um, and then some people who came from the mainland uh, were influenced by Crete. So you had a large influx of people going from Crete to Greece, and they took their beliefs with them, which is fairly normal. Um, so that was when the um, Minoan or Cretan beliefs came to the mainland and mixed with the agricultural um, format that was going on there already in, in terms of a sort of a, a mystery tradition of um, the life of the land. And that was really when the Eleusinian mysteries started. Now, interestingly enough, as Pope pointed out, um, there's even from the very beginning, there was this tradition of absolute secrecy with the Eleusinian mysteries. Nobody was willing to talk about it, or maybe they just plain couldn't. But at the same time, it was also written in a number of places that the same mysteries were celebrated openly and for all on Crete. So um, that's kind of one of those enigmas. If it was open for everybody, why don't we have a record of what it was? Well, it, to me, that pushes us in the direction of saying, well, maybe the reason it's so secret is because you literally couldn't talk about it. It was like beyond words. You had an experience, words failed you. And I'll develop that thought later. At any rate, um, so those mysteries that were established there um, in around 1450 um, B.C., were centered around the myth on the story of Demeter losing her daughter. Her daughter was abducted on a field by Pluto, who came up from the underworld. He had planted a narcissus, a very beautiful flower. She was entranced by it. Um, in her kind of moment of being entranced, he grabbed her up and took her down on his chariot into the underworld. Um, the mother, Demeter, was heartbroken. She couldn't find her daughter. No one seemed to know what was going on. Finally, it turned out that the son had seen what had happened, and Hecate had heard the shrieks of the daughter. So um, Demeter was able to find these entities and find out from them what happened, and, he and Hecate actually helped her out quite a bit in terms of you know, uh, clarifying exactly what had gone down. And she stayed with Demeter and sort of gave her some assistance here and there. And Demeter um, stopped eating, and she also stopped um Growing and, and, and when I say growing, I'm saying this because Demeter is the matter of the world. Her name literally means that it's the, the physical matter of the world. So if she decides in her grief to stop growing, 
that pretty much means that all the other gods are not going to get their sacrifices, they're not going to get their worship, they're basically not going to be considered gods. And because of that, uh, that was a big deal up on Mount Olympus. Zeus and all the other people up, excuse me, gods up there were um, alarmed because the people were starving and they weren't giving any worship and sacrifice. And so these gods got together and said, well, we've got to do something, which eventually meant that they sent um, uh, Hermes uh, down to Pluto in the underworld and to make some kind of a deal. We've got to get Persephone out of the underworld. And lo and behold, she did come up. Um, interestingly, while she was down there, she um, ate a debated number, but a small number of uh, pomegranate seeds. And these pomegranate seeds... Um, the fates decreed since she had eaten mortal food, she would have to come back there uh, periodically. Um, and it turned out that she wound up coming back there once a year for either three months or four months or six months. And that this set up a precedent so that every time she went down there, her mother would grieve and things would stop growing and then she would come back up and they would start growing again. So that's kind of the rudiment of the myth. And it sets up the cycle of the seasons where um, the earth, which is, you know, the mother, Demeter, um, has this seasonal change that we um, participate in as part of life. So I've done a lot of talking. Did you want to say anything there, Poke, or shall I continue? No, go ahead. Okay, okay. Um, So what what you have there within that myth is um, a situation where people um, um, are going to, or I should say within the the mysteries of Eleusis. The people are going to go to Eleusis every year and get initiated into this deep mystery. And it's like there are a lot of myths out there. We have, you know, a world surrounded by various myths and all the, you know, indigenous people have their myths. But what does that mean in terms of a personal participatory experience? Um, Well, for the people of Greece, and then eventually came throughout the Mediterranean, people could go there and get this initiation once a year if they qualified. Um, it meant that they participated in feeling that they were actually one with Demeter. They experienced her grief. They fasted. They um, grieved and they longed and they searched for Persephone. And eventually, this this much we do know, at some point they had a vision of actually seeing Persephone. Now, a lot of people have conjectured maybe there was some kind of a trick involved, um, you know, some sort of stage magic or a theatrical presentation um, where they actually thought they saw the real Persephone. But it's it's very – there's no records of any stage props ever having been bought, and there are a lot of written written things that referred to Eleusis. So there's nothing that would indicate that they actually had a kind of a theatrical, you know, uh, show. And also the, the way that the experience has been described, it, it was never that people sat there and looked at something. It was always that they actually experienced something. In the myth, or I should say, in the, in the um, mysteries, there were things that were shown, and there were things that were said, and there were things that were done or enacted. And um, no one's willing to say exactly what any of those things are, but we know that something along those lines happened. There was another important element called, um, well, it was there was a basket, and then there was a chest, and people would recite a line that had to do with, "I have taken from the from the basket." I have done whatever it is, and they never say what it is they did. I have done something with the thing, and then I have put it into the chest. And um, that's an enigmatic set of statements. It's hard to say, well, what on earth could that mean? Um, I would like to suggest that because the whole of the uh, Eleusinian mysteries revolves around life, death, and rebirth, 
that they are in fact talking about their own souls and that the basket is the basket that a baby would be in. The casket at the end is, of course, the, gra- the, the tomb where the, what you would go down in onto the earth if you were buried. Um, and that what they do in the meantime refers to their life. I think that that's actually a symbolic statement about their soul. They've gone through this experience of um, life, and now they're doing it consciously instead of unconsciously. So that's just one little thought on that. They're, they're, the thing about the Eleusinian Mysteries is many, many books have been written about the Eleusinian Mysteries, and you can find a lot online also. Um, and I, I think I want to go ahead and just jump right into one of the next aspects of it, which is a lot of what you find online and actually a number of the books that people have written in the more recent years are specifically saying um, that the secret of the Eleusinian Mysteries was X, Y, or Z type of drug. Um, And uh, this kind of conjecture was getting started as long ago as when Robert Graves wrote The White Goddess, and he um, conjectured that the, the that the people there had a um, an experience that was internal, um, and that it was powerful because there was some kind of drug augmentation. Um, it is known that while people were in the um, the, the the final big sort of temple um, called the Telesterion, that they would have um, a drink given to them uh, served out of the Kikion. A Kikion was a drink. It was written down um, in Homer what the ingredients were, which was uh, um, barley, uh, water, and um, crusted mint. And this is a very um, uh, bland mixture. One would think that it wouldn't be particularly magical. It is apparently what, in the myth, um, Demeter asked for when she was offered wine by someone who was helping by taking care of her. She said, no, I will have nothing to do with that Um and uh, she asked for this particular drink and drank it. So people drink that either in honor of her or because it's a symbol for something else that really was what they drunk. Um, it has been pointed out that um, the Greek names, um, each if you take the names in sequence of the items that are the ingredients, it can spell out a, a kind of an abbreviated form of the word um, like a mushroom or a, like a mushroom. And so people, some people say that mushrooms, sacred mushrooms or uh, divine mushrooms were one of the ingredients in the drink that they uh, partook of. Now, um, uh, Robert Graves also mentioned that idea. Um, another um, idea that's very popular is, uh, let's see, um, Albert Hoffman, Gordon Wasson, and Carl Ruck wrote a book um, called The Road to Eleusis where they speculate that maybe it was mushrooms or maybe it was an LSD-like ergot from barley um, called claviceps, which is kind of a rusty fungus um, of barley. This could theoretically turn into an intoxicating drink. Um, I guess uh, Albert Hoffman has written fairly extensively about he made one attempt to um, brew up something from these, this particular substance, and he had a, a psychedelic quasi-psychedelic experience. Unfortunately, no one's been able to actually duplicate that experience, including the other people that were involved in writing that book. So um, there's a real lack of foundation since we have, on the one hand, the Eleusinian Mysteries, which lasted for 2,000 years, with literally hundreds of thousands of people successfully experiencing them, and then now we can't find any way to duplicate at least that particular version of why it might have worked. So it's an intriguing idea, but no, there's just no proof for it. Um, Terence McKenna um, thinks that it was maybe the uh, Amanita muscaria uh, or the psilocybin mushrooms. Um, so there's a lot of 
you know, different ideas that have to do with, you know, a drug as, you know, a psychedelic drug as being involved. Um, and, Polk, I, I'm just, I'm kind of dying for you to just say a few words here because I know you've got just a lot to say in there, and I don't like to blather on too long. Well, okay. I, I will I'll speculate a little bit. I know um, people who don't know uh, very much about Amanita and they don't know how to use it, uh, have done a lot of speculating about how it how it um, figures in everything. Uh, one fellow has written a book just recently. I got a copy of it up at uh, up at the um, City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco um, uh, about the Mithriatic. The sacred Mithriatic meal was uh, was Amanita. Well, I. I'm not sure because uh, you know that that that, that doesn't seem, um, and uh, I, I I would personally, much as I would like, you know, much as I like Amanita and all that, and and as as much as it actually is, as, as you know, it's 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 a, it it certainly is a, a can the best candidate for for Vedic soma. It is it really, but. But uh, I don't see Amanita being uh, being it for any uses because Amanita has some very specific characteristics, and none of those specific characteristics seem to be mentioned in any of the um, you know. Either. So, and how much psilocybin are they going to be able to get to handle all those people? Indeed. Uh, psilocybin, you know, is kind of kind of capricious, and 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 I don't know how much of it grows around Greece. So uh, we're into yeah, it is a good question. So so um, uh, you know, I I think I'm wondering now 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 recently the Oracle of Delphi recently there somebody's done a very significant research that there is a gas a volcanic uh, you know, uh, thermal gas that comes up, uh, or could have come up through the the crack in the in the uh, under the tripod of the Oracle of Delphi, and that particular gas would cause the, uh, the visionary state that that she had. Now I'm wondering, just uh, based upon that same idea, and they got a guy that came up with that idea. Had, had a lot of uh, good research behind him, and that's taken seriously. Now, I'm wondering if the Eleusis might have been a particular cave that had that uh, that had that gas would have that gas in it, and that uh, this would. But then, then we then we look into the idea. Of, how would this well, go on? For we have seen years? there's a, a big problem though with with any of these um, anthogenic approaches. Which is this. We have probably a million people that went through this experience. Pregnant women, children, yeah. you name it. Old people, frail people. Yeah. And yeah. none of them, there was never a report of anybody having like seizures or uh, psychosis or schizophrenia, any kind of after effects. See, now, the thing is, like you look at in our own history, we had a, a, a problem with a drug. It was thalidomide, right? Pregnant women took it. We figured out in about 15 years that it was absolutely anathema. We cannot have pregnant women taking that drug. I mean, it doesn't take long. This was 2,000 years. I think that if there was well, a drug I'm, involved, I'm, I'm, I'm it could you. have had side effects, with, I, and we would yeah. have heard about it. You know what yeah, I'm I, I agree with you. I, I, I'm not. 
I'm not arguing. I'm not. I'm not saying that psychedelics are bad. No, and, not and at all. It would, it would please. It would please me actually. It would please me if somebody proved that Amanita was what they were using. I think that was great. But mm-hmm. it, it, you know, knowing what we know, uh, it, it, and I agree with you. I, I, I don't. I, 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 I tend to think this. You know, James, that that. Um, uh, well, he's not an anthropologist. If he was an anthropologist, he would have known better. But he came up, this fellow James came up with this book where he said, round about um, 500 B.C., uh, the whole human, the whole Mediterranean area and uh, the European uh, race, we all went through some sort of a, of a psychic change. Hmm. And before that time, According to oh, him. yeah, the bicameral uh, mind thing, right? Yeah, and the bicameral mind thing, which Julian I think, which, which, right. which as a cultural anthropologist, I think is ridiculous, and also as a magician, I also think it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he said, "Well, before then, people couldn't uh, differentiate between what they were imagining and what uh, or dreaming and what the gods were saying." Well, but, oh, come on, you know. Well, let me uh, so, just say one however, thing about that. Case, let, let, me, let me finish. Let okay. me finish. In this case, I'm going to cite James in reverse, and I'm going to say, back when the Eleusinian mysteries were were going on, people were a great deal more. They were they were they were believers. Mm-hmm. They 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 believed in, in this, and they believed in the inner voices, and they believed in the in in the ritual, and and now we're looking at it from a from a post-enlightenment, and I hate that term, enlightenment, for that, for, for when, when, it, when people be, strove so hard to become unspiritual, they call it the enlightenment. Uh, is a, well, from a post-enlightenment perspective, we're looking back on it, and we're thinking, uh, my gosh, they must have had a drug. <laughs> I don't think they needed it. I think if the ritual was properly done and properly staged, and, and all, they they could have... And they could have achieved it. What do you think? Well, I think that um, to, I, I kind I sort of agree with you, but at the same time, I think it's also fa- fascinating <clears throat> when we remind ourselves words give us capabilities that we don't have if we don't have words. And just to support my little argument, um, I was recently listening to a presentation about um, it was about people who were born uh, unable to hear and they couldn't speak the language. There were some of them who stayed that way and then some who were eventually able to learn sign language. The person that they were interviewing and then another one talked about what it was like before they had language because they were alive in these cases for many, many years before they actually learned how to actually communicate with sign language, which was the first time they ever had any language at all. And one person said that it was um, joyful and peaceful. And the other person referred to it as the dark time, and they didn't want to talk about it because it was just so, it was very difficult for them. Um, And these are both people that are perfectly capable of speaking with sophistication now, but there was a long period of decades in their lives when they really literally had no thoughts. They did not have words. And um, there was a a description by one of the researchers of going into a room in um, Mexico. There was a, a large group of men who lived in this room, none of whom had language. 
and they were communicating with each other very, very slowly, sitting in a circle, by very carefully acting out an event that had happened to them and then reacting and then reacting it so that the other person would other people would finally get what they had experienced and then they would move on to the next aspect of their experience and try to act that out. So I'm just saying that this was fascinating because it, it gave me an inkling of what it's what it might have been like for people before we actually had quote unquote language that allows us to think about thinking. Let me let me say this about that. Remember that was that was something Kennedy always used to say. Let me see this about that, and that gave him a chance to think what he was going to say. <laughs> but, but uh, quite frankly, uh, we're, what, to put what you just said in perspective, here again, we have to look at this post-enlightenment, uh, reductionalist, uh, what they call scientific, it really isn't, but what, what what's called the scientific view, and look at it for what it really is. Now, a good example of that is B.F. Skinner, who I thoroughly despise. B.F. Skinner, in his behavior mod, he he got he actually had uh, a large segment of the psychological profession, whatever that is, believing that that everything that the baby learned was learned from from uh, stimulus and response. That there was nothing, that we weren't born with any any kind of memories or or, or uh, inherited skills or anything like this. And he, hmm. and, or any, any cognizance, any, the, 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 you know, all of this. And Skinner, being an arch-reductionalist and, and, of course, an atheist and, a, you know, and a, and a reductionalist, he, he brought this all down to stimulus and response. Uh, and this actually, this was where you know the stimulus, this this Skinner Skinner type uh, uh, of thinking was what was behind uh, some of the brainwashing uh, experiments that the Russians were doing, and then the, what they were pulling on our guys in Pax Palace in Korea, and what the CIA's MK Ultra was trying to do uh, to use. Uh, psychedelic drug shock to to control people and actually you know you can't do it they they finally found out you couldn't that the Manchurian candidate was uh, was kind of a you know a Skinneristic fantasy uh, the reason why that happened was Noam Chomsky who might be a bit of a left winger himself but still Noam Chomsky proved he's a great linguist by the way he proved that the human Mind at birth is born with what Chomsky called a grammar machine. Mm-hmm. The, the, the human, a, a baby, if he's all all by himself, and and he'll make up a language, and and he'll actually he'll actually make be make up a language, uh, especially if he has to communicate with another baby. He'll he'll they, and and this this grammar machine will create languages. We. We uh, realize this, of course, in you know, our you know our Enochian, that uh, Enochian language that D. and Kelly channeled back during Elizabethan times. That that was a result. That language was a was a, another proof of Noam Chomsky's grammar machine, because um, uh, Kelly, you know, D. D. Had, D. knew Hebrew, he knew Latin, and he knew Greek, but Kelly didn't. 
Kelly didn't even have good Latin, and, and, and so when when the angel started talking to him, uh, he created his own language. Well, there he created their own language, used his own grammar machine, and this is the case. We we argued uh, in anthropology about the analogy of Tarzan's box. You know, would would Tarzan really be able to educate himself with this homeschooling box, this trunk that 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 uh, that his parents had brought over to train to to raise him in India and is shipwrecked on the western coast of Africa, and you know he gets adopted by the apes, but he keeps sneaking back to the old cabin and, and dipping, dipping into the box, and he educates himself from all these uh, these school books and 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 uh, primers that were were in the box. And actually, according to to uh, Chomsky's theory, and was, yes, he could. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, so we have, we're born, we are born with a great deal more in our heads than than these reductionists and these, um, you know, these uh, well, so-called yeah, scientists. I certainly yeah, yeah. agree with you on that. Yeah. Um, I'm just kind of... Uh, Noticing that time's going by, and I do have a lot of, of more kind of details I'd like to yeah, kind okay. of communicate here about the, specifically the Eleusinian I, mysteries. I, I, I thought I thought I thought you were asking me to fill in some time here. Oh so no, no, not, and by I the way, we, have, you had we have two hours. Joe, Joe, we have two hours, so just go ahead oh, and finish up. Okay. I won't interrupt okay, so, you. Okay. All right, so I, all right. no, you're welcome to say whatever you want, but um, so yes, I would ma'am. like to just go back to um, the actual experience of the Eleusinian mysteries uh, for those people who have participated. Um, anybody could go uh, to be a participant if they spoke the language of Greek and they um, had not murdered anybody. Um, the only exception that was made to that was when uh, Hercules, who in fact had murdered plenty of people in the process of being quite the warrior, um, he had to receive special uh, purification. And when they set that up to accommodate him, um, that was the beginning of when they started doing the two-part ritual. So they had one in the spring at a, a city or a town called Agrai, A-G-R-A-I, which was uh, southeast of um, Athens. And then people would go there for their initial spring experience. And then in September, approximately August to September, in the dark of the moon, um, they would start the uh, nine-day Eleusinian Mysteries experience. Um, the uh, whole event would start out with messengers going out uh, around the countryside and announcing that it was going to begin so that everybody knew to gather up their things that wanted to go. There were uh, some costs involved. They had to pay um, the priests, and they had to pay for the cost of the pig that was going to be sacrificed. Um, each person had to bring a small pig to sacrifice because it was considered a very pure thing. And they would um, uh, have this experience of uh, getting together by the sea and bathing together and then sacrificing their pig spending the night um, there in the Athens area and then the next morning starting off um, to go to these uh, uh, 14, 15-mile uh, journey to Eleusis, which they walked the whole distance. There was um, a bridge um, partway along where up until that point people who were uh, rich or maybe old, they could uh, go in a carriage. But at that point, everybody had to get off of their carriages and walk together, forming a kind of a democracy and commonality among the people so that there wasn't uh, levels of, say, the rich and the poor. Also, each person was wearing a same garment. It was um, 
kind of determined at some point that uh, to participate you had to have a certain very plain, simple garment and wear that for this experience. Again, it took away uh, the sense of differences among people and probably uh, allowed people to have a lot more um, sense of commonality and communion and kind of fun with each other without feeling put off by maybe their neighbor being obviously a very different social class than themselves. Um, along the way, they had a um, uh, there was a lot of kind of joy and noise, people would sing and so on, but um, there was some interesting events that were set up along the way. One was um, they would cross this one bridge, and um, the, the uh, there were people that were set up to call names out against uh, the rich people, especially the very powerful people. Um, they, they would be taunted um, in a very negative way, and again, it was to kind of any puffed up ego that a person might have, this was to kind of take them down and go, okay, you know, you're the same as everybody else on this particular journey. Um, which probably was part of the whole set and setting thing, getting people into the right mindset so that they would really be ready when they um, they experience the ultimate mysteries. Um, because I think most people could appreciate that if you go in with a big ego, it, it's just not going to be the same. It's kind of like Jesus saying, you know, unless you become as a child, you're really not going to gain the kingdom of heaven. You have to have that that beginner's mind, that open, uh, clean slate mind that's willing to actually be opened up that isn't going to happen if you're so busy being full of yourself. So um, there were some other interesting events along the way, and it's a long, you know, 14 miles is a long way to to walk. Um, They did it all in one day. Um, There was a vision. I don't know if it happened every single year. There was a particular female who would show up. She was incredibly beautiful, and people. She would come up out of the ocean, and because they were walking along a lot of us near the water, and um, she would come up out of the water, and people would kind of go, "Oh, she's just this radiant beauty." And now. Uh, nobody I, I, has explained to me why this was part of the mysteries, but this did happen, and or at least it's supposed to have happened. Um, to, um, if someone is interested in really reading kind of a day-by-day account, um, Fred Adams did write a really beautiful day-by-day account of the Eleusinian Mysteries from a participant's point of view, um, and that's you can read that on the Ferraferia website, ferraferia.org. Um, go to the knowledge uh, after you go to the homepage. You go to the knowledge category, and then under life, death, and rebirth, there's three articles uh, about uh, the Eleusinian mysteries. And this one that describes it that I'm describing to you right now is called Our Ecstatic Journey. You might feel like reading that after this uh, radio show is over, and then you'll feel like you really got the you know the really intimate description of every detail. Um, and uh, which I can't relay all of you right now. It's quite a long article. Um, but um, anyway, so they would get there to this um, to the to the uh, outer outer perimeter of the Eleusinian uh, temple complex, uh, which I've been to actually. I went there a number of years ago as part of uh, shooting my film, Dancing with Gaia. And uh, it's all in ruins. There's barely one, um, you know, of the carved stones on top of another one. There's just a few bits of a few of the uh, entranceway areas that are still a little bit piled up. Um, But things have labels on them, and you can make your way along the Sacred Way, which was the name of the road they took from Athens. And, um, you know, one could theoretically make the same journey. It used to be a very beautiful journey because the uh, the fields near near there were the most fertile fields in all of Greece, the Rarian Plain, I think it's called. And um, uh, there was, in fact, a lot of barley growing there. Um, the uh, people would enter the uh, temple precinct, and then um, 
uh, one thing they did was um, they stayed up all night and they danced. Even though they'd made this terribly long journey, um, they danced around this well uh, called the Well of Beautiful Dances. And it's my theory, having kind of thought about that well and the fact that they were already, um, you know, kind of tired and exhausted and probably very hungry and, you know, according to uh, one of the amazing, wonderful researchers is Carl Karenyi, he's written many books on ill uses, um, he said that they fasted the whole time. Other people say they only fasted on certain days, so there's not an agreement on that. But still they may have been fasting, and um, so they would have been in a heightened state of awareness and expectation. And then they are there they are dancing pretty much almost all the whole night around this circular well, which... Um, is going to be reflecting, right? You're going to look at the water and you're going to see, because it's the dark of the moon, you're going to see the stars reflected in the well. And people were also carrying torches as they danced. So you get this this amazingly visual um, um, panoply of stars above your head and the, the reflections of the stars in the waters and then the moving torches um, all around you of the people as they danced in the circle dance. And um, I can only imagine that this was spectacularly beautiful and a very visionary experience in and of itself um, and very powerful in terms of getting people further along that uh, inner journey towards being really ready to receive the final mysteries. So the days had gone by. People do stay did stay uh, with somebody uh, one of the nights there at the uh, in the Eleusis area. They slept eventually, um, but uh, as you know, time goes by. There's um, some sacrifices and preparation, and then they go over as a group to the um, cave, the cave of Pluto. Again, I saw this cave. It's it's not a terribly deep cave. I think that possibly it either crumbled and fell in, or uh, when it, the temple was destroyed by the forces of, well, Christianity, the um, Theodosius I, who was a Roman emperor, um, Christian purportedly emperor, um, as part of destroying basically all pagan uh, temples and monuments, uh, ordered for the Eleusinian Mysteries to be closed in about 393 uh, or 4 AD. And then um, just a couple of years later, the forces of Alaric the Goth, he was king of the Goth, came down and literally destroyed the temples and took every stone down. So at any rate, back to the uh, Plutonian cave, what you see is not very deep. It's not something you can go deeply walking into and find yourself in a room. It's sort of shallow. But um, I suspect that at one time it was quite a bit deeper, and maybe, um, it, maybe it did have some kind of a gas in it, although I just don't know because there was never, like I say, a report of any kind of side effects, what we would call drug side effects. Um, but... Um, in Fred's beautiful description, which based on a lot of research, I have a page and a half of um, his bibliography of the Eleusinian Mysteries, which I will retype a po and post. I haven't got a, trans a, a digitized copy of it yet. Um, um, on the website, people can see what the books were that he referred to to do his research on this. Um, but he, he wrote that um, people, while they were there at the Plutonian cave, was where they experienced seeing Persephone. And other people think they saw Persephone in the Telesterion, so that's, I'm not sure why there's disagreement. But there was an, a vision um, which Fred describes as being 
having been searching in sad and grief-stricken along with Demeter and identifying with Demeter, then they get to the the cave and then um, the Persephone, first they see it looks like a hag, like a death, a corpse coming up because she had been in the world of the dead, but then that uh, that just floats away, all that hag-like appearance as if it's in smoke, and there's the radiant Persephone just in all of her gorgeous young beauty, and everybody is so thrilled to see her identifying as they are with Demeter. They feel the same emotional response that Demeter would have felt, which would be incredibly um, joyful and grateful to see her daughter. So um, then... uh, the next, I think, day, and I, I'm not getting my sequence exactly 100% right in terms of exactly how many days were spent doing what here, um, um, but the final event there for the most of the people was then going into the, the building called the Telesterian, which was large enough to accommodate up to 3,000 people when that's, in fact, how many people were doing this for many years in a row. It's a huge, huge crowd, and I can only imagine they had a lot of uh, support services but um, they went in there, and it was dark in there, and so they had torches. They had a central, um, very small room, which had a door in it, which was not in the – It was, I say central, it was in the middle, but it was actually off-center of the middle. It didn't face the crowd, and there was no amphitheater-type seating in terms of where people could see that the opening to that small, tiny um, building within the building. Um, the Hierophant, uh, whose name meant the shower, um, he uh, was the one who was going to open the door to that at some point. This is known. Um, there was, there is. You can still see them. I saw them. Little steps, one upon the other, all around the edges of the room, which could everybody could actually sit down. Um, it, there were columns, um, very closely spaced, to uh, either hold up the ceiling or to replicate trees. I don't really know. Um, but what that would have done, it would have prevented the crowd from seeing like any kind of a, a show in this theatrical sense. If somebody was trying to present like uh, some kind of a little drama, it was absolutely inappropriate because they couldn't possibly have seen it around all these large columns that were there everywhere. Um, and also the, the direction that this little tiny building within a building faced, it wasn't even towards the main where the majority of the people would have been either seated or standing. So there's a lot of kind of oddness around this. Nonetheless, people were in there, and um, people said what they said. They saw certain things. They heard certain things, and they enacted certain things, and they took the drink of the Kikion with its mysterious ingredients, which I have said what they, what we know what they were, and they might possibly have included something additional, uh, you know, that would have enhanced the experience in a safe way. Um and I'm not throwing that possibility out by any means. There was so much going on in that era of the world with people mixing up, like wine, for instance, was never just what we think of, you know, the the product of fermented grape, period. It was a, a concoction that had a lot of other things in it, not just grape juice that was fermented. Um, people were constantly brewing up things that w- were relatively exotic, they knew how to do it. A lot of people were specialists in it. And um, and it's fairly fascinating if you read up on it. Um, and uh, I, I've got some wonderful books on uh, sacred, sacred brewing and herbal healing, um, which kind of gave me a little education in terms of how much was really known. And unfortunately, we've also lost probably more than knowledge than we, than we actually have now about what was going on then. So it, it is quite possible that they had some really, really safe thing that they could give people that would enhance their experience 
but not replace the experience. I think I think enhance is probably more accurate. One of the fascinating things that was reported was that um, in the whole you know 2,000 years period, which is a very very long time of how long these mysteries were enacted. Um, there was one time only when some strangers got in there and lived to tell the story. <clears throat> Two young men somehow managed to get into the temple area, and they got their selves physically inside of the telesterion, and um, and then they were discovered as being imposters. They weren't, you know, initiates. They weren't people who had gone through all the pre-initiatory process, and they were kicked out. Um, I think that one of them was killed. I'm not sure if the other one was killed or just managed to escape with his life. But um, nonetheless, he was able to communicate to other people outside of the mysteries that he had, in fact, well, they had actually seen something. And what they had seen, um, interpret this how you will, that the building was full of the gods floating in every direction. The gods were there, floating in the air in every direction. How can we interpret that? It's such a fascinating. That sounds, like a, that sounds, that sounds like a medieval magic lantern show. Maybe. And you know, actually, actually, uh, the truth of the matter is that that is that was possible. They recently discovered in Japan, and I'm trying to get a hold of one, a reflective magic mirror that that comes from I don't know thousands of years back. Uh, came over from Tibet into Japan, and and this you, what you do is you take this mirror and it has carvings on it, very delicate carvings, and you reflect that sunlight that comes through a shaft, and that reflects into smoke and produces these visions. So this is a variation of yeah, that this this that this, this sounds like it could have been and Paracelsus. And, and others uh, in, the, in, the, in the late Middle Ages and early Renaissance, they had what's called the magic lantern, and basically that was a, a transparency with a, with, a, uh, with a light behind it, and, and you could reflect on a, on a reflect a, uh, like a slideshow, you could reflect it on a surface or in smoke. Well, if, I mean, does that require a lens? Yeah, well, the, the transparency itself would be the lens, in uh-huh. that sense. And and uh, uh, I don't know whether you've seen the latest Oz movie, but uh, but uh, that uh, the, the, the the climax of the latest of the, uh, the great and powerful Wizard of Oz is using that sort of a, a medieval magic lantern on a on a huge. Uh, bonfire of smoke in the middle of the city square, hmm. but yeah, this, this is this is this possible that that was the case. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I think that 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 is possible, and um, you know, I don't know, but it's a cool idea. I like it. Um, they haven't found anything like that, but very well, it could have been destroyed either on purpose when um, the decree came out that they had to close the Eleusinian mysteries. The two principal families um, who kept they were the, uh, there was the Hierophants families, it was the Eumolpids and the Karikis I think it was, these two families um, were the ones that basically administered and were in charge of the mysteries and every, you know, when they had their sons and daughters they took over and so on Um, so that went down for like, you know, that whole period of time apparently, 2,000 years and they might have taken it upon themselves to destroy any paraphernalia because nothing was ever found 
you know, in terms of uh, apparatus like that. But, um, again, they might have just said, you know, we, we can't let this get out. Uh, you know, this secret has to has to go away now, and maybe it'll be discovered again sometime, but not now, you know, because they didn't want to have these um, these terribly destructive people come down and destroy, you know, to take their secrets away as well as actually destroy their temple would have been insult upon injury. Um, but uh, um, the the thing that, you know, I want to come back to the sort of touchstone of our show, which is that a number, like everybody who was anybody, was initiated into these Eleusinian mysteries. Um, anybody, it, not just the um, early Greek era, what they call the Archaic era, also in the Classical Greek era, and also in the Greek-Roman era, where Rome was actually you know, coming into power and then in full power up until... Uh, the Roman edicts started coming out that only Christianity would be allowed to be a religion, which was right around 360 um, A.D. Until then, uh, Eleusis was very, very powerful, and it was an incredible magnet. People went there from all over the Mediterranean. Um, As Christianity's forces uh, got more and more um, determined to have one and only one religion in that whole area, uh, at a certain point people realized that they basically it was politically incorrect to be involved and so the less people started going of course but um at any rate the um uh the focus and all these people who you know experienced it they were allowed to talk about how they felt they just couldn't talk about what happened and what they what they did record was that as a result of experiencing this they no longer were afraid of death and that's so profound. I mean, what it what does it take for people to not be afraid of death? Especially consistently, like all of the people said this. And they said that um as a result of having this blessing of this experience of initiation, um they live a happier life now and they have an expectation of a happier life after death. So, um there are some things that I would like to put forth as to how Ferraferia views um the Eleusinian mysteries and what happened there. Um, um, specifically, Persephone is um, Cori is the name means uh, daughter goddess or the young maiden goddess, um, and she's the central divinity for um, Ferraferia because we feel that that uh, and they etymologically core and care are very similar words. They are etymologically very related, and um, um, I want to mention as a background that there's being a uh, continuous movement forward with humanity from the very very raw beginnings before we were really human and more and more and more as time goes on now even with the internet there's an increasing amount of caring that's going on um, between people and between people and between people caring for other beings like animals and places and um, in the early you know earliest parts of humanity Maybe we had an easier life and things were sort of paradisal, but we certainly have gone through periods of just incredible um, bloodshed. And even now, there's a lot of, um, you know, painful wars going on around the world. However, according to a University of, I think it was Toronto study in 2006, I believe it was, um, actually the amount of worldwide violence has been consistently going down year after year with variations, you know, here and there, but still... If you look at the broad swath of history, 
there's less violence. And as we get more and more connected to each other, the increasing amount of care goes up. And I think that this is intrinsic to our souls as human. This is kind of what we're here to do, is is to increase the amount of loving and caring that's going on between people and for the planet. And I think that if we are going to survive as a, um, a human, as, as humans uh, and, and having an earth to live on, that's absolutely crucial, and this is the transformative step we have to take. So to take that back to care, Corey, right, the young maiden goddess who cares, um, Persephone was an emanation of that maiden goddess, and she was the sweet young daughter of Demeter. She went down into the underworld in her loving, sweet, gentle nature, in her beauty, in her magnificence, and um, Pluto of course, had selected her ahead of time. I mean, he, he knew that she was beautiful. He knew that he wanted to make her his bride. He had gotten permission from Zeus, his brother. Pluto was also, you know, an Olympian god, but he was down below. He, Zeus had gotten the, the Olympus, and he had gotten the underworld, but it wasn't considered a bad place. It was considered the seedbed or the place for the seeds and all the riches to come from. That was the underworld. So um, he had gotten Persephone down there, and what he didn't know and what nobody really expected to happen happened, and that was that Persephone forever changed the nature of the underworld. She brought love to the underworld. And she, she because of who and what she was, she brought that Olympian sort of strain of immortality, you know, that... that uh, that fine sensibility, she brought it down into the underworld in such a way that Pluto no longer would just have people die and stay dead. It was like she was going to be allowed to be returning to the upper world because of the deal that was made. And her, what she did when she was there with being so loving was that she changed Pluto's approach so that then he would allow not only her but also all of humanity the chance for rebirth. And that's the perspective that uh, Feriferia has about Persephone. Um, and Fred, he he got this from a, a lot of study. I think that Carl Karenyi's uh, uh, book that he wrote with um, Carl Jung, C.G. Jung, the great um, psychiatrist, psychologist, and Carl Karenyi wrote um, this book called, uh, let's see, it was uh, the Archetypal... Let's see, archetypal mother and daughter. Let's see, the miracle of Eleusis. Hold on, it's one of these. Here we are, Eleusis, archetypal image of mother and daughter, a Bollington series, volume four, um, published 1967. It's an, a wonderful book. I have I've read actually a lot of these books, but um, it's probably the best. And it, uh, with the influence of Carl Jung being involved, it's. Um, let's see, is this my my telling stories here. I think that's the one at least that Jung was involved with. They co-wrote a book about this and the psychological aspect of it is what I'm trying to get at here. It was that um, this is a transformation that happened on what Polk calls often the the inner, not the shared reality, but the interpersonal reality. That that one has this um, possibility of renewal and it's, it's, it's both objectively true in shared reality, but it's also and crucially important that it's it's a, it's true within your own personal reality for it to actually take place. You have to actually have a certainty, and then you know it's not going to just magically happen if you um, 
have no consciousness whatsoever. If you have a consciousness, then you are going to be more likely to receive this gift. And that's why the people who said, who had gone to the Eleusinian Mysteries, blessed is he who has experienced these mysteries, they, they don't have nothing to fear. But the person who has not experienced the Eleusinian Mysteries, um, it doesn't have this great blessing. So it was definitely understood that there was dichotomy between the people who had that consciousness and the one who didn't. Did you want to say anything, Polk? I just have a feeling you probably do. Well, I I was uh, I did want to say something a little while back, but um, but I forgot what it was. And and, and uh, but you're doing fine. And and uh, you know, um, well, the whole idea of 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 uh, Pluto being being um, converted more or less or saved. Um, Persephone, uh, Persephone saving Pluto, so he releases uh, the souls to to uh, return. This this is wonderful because the Greek the Greek hell or Hades was was really a gloomy place. I mean it it uh, and it has come down to us. The Roman Catholic Church, you know, and Dante they adopted aspects of that uh, that for the for purgatory and what have you. But I remember Achilles, uh, you know, that, that line from when Achilles, when they summon up the shade of Achilles, and he says, I'd rather be a beggar in the land of the living than a prince in the land of the dead. Remember? Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, that, that, that really, uh, that, that is very significant, I think, is as Persephone and, and Corey is uh, as the redeemer that that allows uh, us to have uh, or to have um, have more pleasant reincarnations. Absolutely. I guess that's 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 wonderful, and 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 uh, that that of course is the uh, probably the reason why. I would think just just thinking about what you're, what you're saying, this is probably the reason why the Eleusinian mysteries lasted so long and why everybody enjoyed them so much. Is in a sense they were giving uh, the people the same thing that in a, in a way that Jesus was giving the people. And the reason why Christianity was so successful was because Jesus was just. Enthusiastically promising everybody that all they had to do was follow his teachings, and they and they would have a glorious life in the in the next world. And and that was not something that well the Gnostics were were preaching something like that, but not as not as as enthusiastically and as and as um, as as simply as Jesus was, and this. And if this is what the Eleusinian mysteries were offering to people who who only thought of a gloomy a gloomy afterlife, you know, that yeah, this was one of the reasons why it lasted so long. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, 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 you know, here is the glowing light of salvation in the middle of in the middle of this world where all you have to look forward to is. is a gloomy life, and well, we're gonna. You come here, and and you'll learn that the next life is going to be just as good as can possibly be. I think that's uh, that's that that may be the that may be the, the treasure that kept it going for so long. What do you think? Well, um, I think you're absolutely right. Um, it, I think that 
it was obviously an incredibly transformative experience um, because it was just people wrote about it with such incredible reverence, and um, it was highly respected. Um, the only time there was one person who see this this sort of agitates for the idea that there was a substance involved. This one um, noble Greek man uh, was accused of having obtained the Eleusinian mysteries and served it to his dinner dinner guests. Well, how can you? You know, it really makes it sound like it's just a substance. You know, it, yeah. it, and yet at the same time. I wonder about that because this particular individual was a very – he was intelligent. He was a very shady character in the sense that he he was very sarcastic. He had a negative view of everything. He didn't believe in anything, did not believe in the gods, any of them. And um, at a certain point he was run out of town, and um, it was uh, for disrespect for the gods, I believe. Um, of course, there was the Eleusinian thing, too. But he left, and I think he went to it was Persia. Might have been early, yeah, Persia. And um, he would uh, he was he would be like a military commander for them. And then he eventually got somebody to invite him back to Greece, and they let him back because he was so handy to have in a war, and he he could strategize very very well. Um, but again, the thing I, I just wonder about anything that was said about him because he was he was like a very negative thinker and anything around him it's like he would make up the worst possible spin and make it sound minimal he he liked to put things down including the lucian mysteries or anything and he put down all the gods as well so um you will hear that story about him but um at least that's my take on it having read about him um is that uh i'm not i mean i think there might have been a substance involved but that's certainly not the whole thing that's just a small part of it um so I think that they well, provided so I, something I, I incredibly do, powerful. I do think, though, that, that, that we should remember in looking back on this sort of thing that this was an age uh, all the way up to, literally all the way up to this, what we call the Enlightenment. People people believed. I mean, they, they did. They, they, they believed. And, and, and uh, there weren't that many atheists running around. There were a few in Greece, of course, a few, because the Greeks speculated on everything, obviously. So there were a few cynical um, uh, philosophers. But, but even Plato, with all of, who, uh, with all of his um, political you know, uh, uh, chauvinism and pragmatism and everything, he... he Insisted on 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 the veneration of the gods, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and and Socrates did too. And in all of these, the major Greek philosophers, they they the the, the, um, the reverence for the gods was was just uh, assumed. I mean, you you just did. And I think that that we're looking back, we're looking back on this from this post-enlightenment perspective and wondering just what it was that really was. And we just failed to realize that in those days, people really took religion seriously. They did. And they they do it, and we don't today. Are you still there? Well, I'm not sure that we I don't. don't. Um, I, I, let me put say well, this. We, uh, no, 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 no. We what? do. We do. <laughs> we realize. In fact, I tell some of my my students who are cynical type people, I say, look, religion, whether you like it or not, religion is a tool. And and if you look at it as a tool and and, and so believe believe it 
if it's useful to you, and if it, you find that later that it's not useful, then believe something else. But it's a tool. But believe. Yeah. You know, for the, well, or, yeah. While you're doing it. I, w- yeah. I just wanted to mention that um, earlier in the show I said that it's possible that people didn't talk about it because they literally couldn't come up with the right words. It's like there weren't words to describe what happened. And I think that that, the reason I think that, I personally think that that's got to be true, is um, because I actually had an experience myself, absolutely without drugs, it was one of those, like, I didn't do anything special to get it, I was just lucky. Um, And it was, you know, I was like I would have think, well, I was asleep, but I wasn't asleep. I was some, and it wasn't a dream. I was in bed, but I had this experience that's absolutely beyond words. And I, I wish I could repeat it. It was an amazing experience. All I can say is the way I described it later to people was the laughter of the gods. I was, you know, my consciousness was somewhere either else or it was expanded. It was way more than everyday consciousness. There was a sense somehow of gods, like divinities, plural, definitely, and of joy and of laughter, and that that was somehow the essential nature of reality. That's what I got from it. And um, I don't talk about it too often because, um, boy, I'm having trouble describing it even now. And, you know, if people have had some kind of experience like that, they'll kind of get it, but I don't know. It seems like, you know, most people when I talk about it, it's kind of neat, but I didn't have that, you know. Well, having had a similar experience a couple times, so let me ask you this about it. Now, Walter Stace wrote a little book about the nature of this this experience that we're talking about. He calls it he calls it undifferentiated unity. What what the way he describes it uh, is the ultimate mystical experience is when you become one with the universe and one with uh, one with God, and you, you feel like you are you are completely you are the center of everything, and you don't particularly know anything. It's just, and you, you're not, you, you don't have the, but it doesn't matter because you are the center, and 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 you're you're at one with the whole universe, and uh, and and you have this wonderful feeling of 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 expansiveness and elation, and and like you have reached the ultimate. Well, I think that certainly describes my experience, except that there was also this feeling that there was, I I wasn't alone. I wasn't alone. There was like, there was this sense of laughter and these like, not that that I could see like individual divinities or anything, but somehow there was this sense that there were these other others, you know, and that it was very joyful and there was sort of a sense of all of us or something about it. So, you know, this, I'm, I'm, it, I guess I'm fortunate because I, I discovered Fair Fairy and Fred and Svetlana were always insisting that there's no ontological necessity for there to only be one. They always were insisting that there was just as much of a, 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 a likelihood and um, you know necessity for there to be many individuals I as agree. there to be one. I agree. Now, my particular time, the times that I've had this uh, this experience. It is uh, basically. I guess maybe I'm a monotheist. I'm a I'm a I'm a monotheist probably at, at my inner nature, uh, even though I very much, you know, I very much believe in in in, in pantheism because I think that monotheism gets misused all the time. 
so I, I, I let me put it this way: I would have appreciated your mystical experience as much or more than than my lonely my my lonely one. But lonely wasn't lonely. I was at the center of everything, and how could I be lonely? I mean, everything was mine. Uh, but I didn't. But I didn't really feel like people were like there were invisible beings around me laughing. Although I wish I had. I, I you know, I envy you with your pagan mystical experience. <laughs> I, 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 next, next time, next time, I want to try for that. I think, I, oh. I think I want to try for that. Try for the but pagan words, mystical. Words experience. are very difficult. You know, you, you know what I'm saying. It's like. Oh, I We're sitting here trying our hardest to describe yeah. something that can't be described, you know. I don't know. I was lying under under a mirror. I was lying under the mirror and looking at a fire top. All right. Oh, so that okay. was when blammo, you know, and and oh. and and and, uh, uh, and you know, I had I think I had I had some I had well I had help in that from from uh, from uh, you know uh, some bread top, but boy, I'll tell you that that it was but that was probably it. I was looking at this one fire top. Now maybe if I've been looking at, at a group of, of, of things, maybe I'll, I'll oh well whatever. <laughs> but but no, but these are uh, these are mystical experiences. You want to take some callers? Sure. If someone wants to call, I'd love to have them call. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. Okay, let's 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 open up for the callers here because uh, we got plenty of time. Um, so uh, let's uh, you know what the the, the number is. Those of you who'd like to talk with uh, with Joe about this, and and you can even talk with me too if you want to. But uh, the host, uh, the uh, guest call-in number is three four seven eight five seven. One eight three zero, and we got a caller. Who are we speaking with? Hello, you're on the air. Who's who are we talking with? All right, we don't have anybody. Okay. Well, anyway, well, maybe they can uh, call back if they didn't quite get through. Oh, they'll call. They'll they'll call back. Anyway, um, so uh, this mystical experience thing, um, this brings up uh, you know, and your your yours and mine, uh, differing in a sense that. That uh, I was having this, uh, this, um, I'm the one and only, the center of the universe, and it's all mine. And, you know, and the funny thing about that was, I really didn't care about right. finding, finding out anything about it. Right. I, you know, there was no desire to, 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 no, to, 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 and, no, and, you know, uh, yeah. we, okay, can I, is it, do you have a moment, can I say, are you there? Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, um, I want to, before we, you know, kind of get too far down the road, because sometimes things kind of, suddenly it's like, okay, we're all done, you know, and then I might forget this important thing that I wanted to mention. Um, I wanted to just mention that there, that it's interesting that in great, in Greece, even today, you know, there are areas in the, out in the countryside where, um, People do um, agriculturally inspired, uh, well, festivals, I guess you'd call them. Not exactly rituals, but they have a ritual component. Um, and there is a Christian overlay, but there are kind of little bits, if you um, you know look at what they're doing, that seem to sort of harken back to the Eleusinian Mysteries, just little bits of what they're doing. And... Um, 
in their weddings, like even today, they um, throw pomegranate seeds and they include pomegranates as like an element of the fertility aspect of marriages. Um, and it's like there are these sort of little bits of um, things that aren't completely lost, you know, which is nice. Um, and uh, other things that are going on are um, that here in the U.S., um, I don't know the limit of how many different people are trying to simulate the Eleusinian mysteries, but um, Oberon Zell mentioned to me one time that he <clears throat> was involved with some people who were uh, recreating the Eleusinian mysteries. Apparently they had been doing it um, every year as kind of an open, you know, just sign up for it and do it thing, but I think that he said they were changing it over so it would be like a year-long preparation format, much more involved before one would actually get to the final experience. Um, also at the Church of, uh, uh, not Church, I'm sorry, the um, what is it? CIIS, Integral Studies, something Integral Studies. It's a yeah. college. I'm sorry. Um, they have a uh, program. It's in San Francisco. Um, and uh, Integral Studies, it'll come to me in a minute. The, they have a women's studies program there, um, women's spirituality specifically. Mara Keller is the name of the um uh, I'm, I'm sure she's a Ph.D. who runs that program. And she, I believe, is going to be writing a book or maybe has already written a book. She, last time I spoke with her, she was working on it, on the Eleusinian Mysteries. Um, she can be found also on the Internet. She's published a paper that she um, wrote on the subject a while ago. And uh, she said to me that um, she and her students do uh, some sort of a creation, recreation of the Eleusinian Mysteries as part of their studies, which I thought was kind of an interesting, um, uh, you know, thing to actually experience that on a university level. Um, the name of her place I just remembered is uh, California Institute for Integral Studies, um, and it's a really a fine uh, a fine university or college, I believe. Um, so I, if other people know of other um, people who are doing versions of the Eleusinian Mysteries, I'd love to hear about it. I, I, I believe that the one that Obron Zell referred to does probably involve the use of some uh, entheogens, I would, I would guess. There was a group here um, oh, about five years ago or more. Uh, we had a group here in the Los Angeles area that made, uh, that um, I think for one year uh, they, they, they staged uh, and they, they had some very uh, a very uh, impressive promotion on it. Uh, and, uh, it was very, it was rather expensive and uh, uh, and whatever. And they tried to do it. And I don't, I think they did actually do one year, one season of it. And uh, then we never heard of them after that. So huh. if they're still doing it, they're doing it very quietly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was that was going on, and they called it the Eleusinian Mysteries, and you had to go through quite a process to sign up for it or something like that. I think Greg. Uh, well, I'm not going to mention. I shouldn't be mentioning names, but uh, one of our one of our people, I think, uh, went through it, and I and I could find out from him uh, what what uh, went on. Uh, but uh, I haven't heard from them in years, though. So I don't think anybody in this area is doing it. I may be wrong. Yeah. Oh, of course, Ferifaria, we have our initiation, which um, has certain elements that we've um, sort of appropriated oh, from yeah. the Eleusinian Mysteries. So, um, you know, without... Oh, we did that down here. Yeah, yeah, we certainly have that um, within Ferifaria also. 
So, anyway, uh, I, I want to mention your book, and I want to try to see if we can sell some, get some, get some you know, copies of your book out there. Also, uh, tell us about your book, and and uh, and uh, let's uh, you know, tell, tell us how to get it. And, okay. Um, um, uh, celebrate wildness, magic, mirth, and love on the Fair Faria Path is uh, with art by by me, but by with art by Fred Adams is is really it's a a lovely. Um, what you would call an art book. It's um, uh, printed on very thick black paper, um, very heavy. It's a hardback book. Um, every Almost every single page has very large um, uh, paintings and drawings and illustrations by Fred Adams. Really, really beautiful. I did um, the photography that's in there with a few exceptions. Um, um, and uh, a few by uh, Zandria has actually contributed a few photos. Um, thank you very much. And uh, the book is um, the first section of it is um, it's an inter- it's like a it's almost an initiatory experience in and of itself because it's visions um, on one page you'll get like you know one of the visions that Fred created and then on the page facing it you'll have the um, the the teaching or the the meditation you might say that goes with that vision and so um, you know you can kind of ponder through that for you know the first quarter of the book or so it talks about uh what fair fairy is and what cory is the heart of the world and there's um lots of visions of the goddess and what kuros is and the twin goddesses the light and dark aspects of the goddess um the relationship between breasts and fruit trees the mysteries of death and rebirth and um the uses of trance and magic of dreams um and uh a meditation for going deep down into the earth uh for regeneration and blessing um then the the next section is called fairy practices it uh describes the whole role of the fairy in in uh, fair fairia and how to make a fairy ring hinge and how to bless it and consecrate it and use it and have fun with it and um how it connects to the seasons and the sacred directions and how you can get wilder charms and all that and get those involved with your circle and kind of expand the the meaning and um connection of your circle way out to the horizon and and beyond um there's uh you know imagery that goes with the sacred year there's a whole discussion of what we were talking about of Eleusis and Eleusinian mysteries there's a sample of um um like a fairy ring practice or a fairy ring circle that you might do on your own um there's a self dedication that you can do if if you wish to um on your own kind of join with fair fairy in your heart um and uh you know some some more I'll just say some more about uh the biomes and the ancestors and the fairies and how it all fits together um so that's kind of a little i guess word picture to describe what is in this book and um uh it's 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 not a cheap book it's uh i i have to admit it's kind of an expensive book because of what it is it's it's like i say it's an absolutely gorgeous really you know beautiful thick heavy paper with gorgeous illustrations and um it's a hardback book so it isn't it isn't inexpensive but um but it does have a lot in it and um i hope that any of you who do order it you know i'm sure you'll really enjoy it um it's available through the ferraferia website that's literally the only place that's available um in the world <laughs> and um uh if you uh were on the ferraferia website ferraferia.org you could just go to the um, uh, tab at the top that says tools, and then it says books under that. 
and you click on that, and then you'll see books and text for sale. And it's the first one available on the top, along with a picture of the book. Um, so I think that kind of describes it pretty well, and I, I hope you know. I hope give us, into give that. us the website again. Give us the website sure. twice. I'll spell it out for these uh, people. Now these people got to pick up first. First, pick up your pencils, people <laughs> out there. Go find your pencil now. Pick it up. Now get a piece of paper, and now, now, uh, Joe Carson will give you the website. Go ahead. Okay. All right. So it's I'll spell it out. Feraferia.org, which is F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A dot O-R-G. And once you're on the website, you'll see um, kind of at the top of the, towards the top of the page a series of little tabs. And you just go right over to the next to the last one over, which says tools. Um, you know, take your mouse down to where it says books, and then click on that. Ignore the little tabs off to the right; they're superfluous. Uh, just click where it says books, and that'll take you to where it says books and text for sale. And it's the first item on that page. You'll see with a nice description and a picture of the book. So, I think that's that's what you need to know. And you will go to this website, and you will get this book. <laughs> Because you want it. (laughs) And you will be glad. And you will be happy. And when you wake up, you will remember everything you have been instructed to do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for free. (laughs) All right. Now, uh, okay. And and, uh, um, uh, let's see. We're probably... I've probably just about uh, uh, gotten this wrapped up. Yeah. Uh, so I will I will uh, uh, tell them about what's going on next week. And uh, next week, next week, for those of you who are still the new hearty souls who still want to stay with this mystical program, <laughs> next week we are going to go, and we have we have gotten up to the point now in the tree of life where we are just about getting close to the abyss. So what's going to happen here is is next week we're going to Saturn and we're going to be out of the 10 sphere tree and we're going to be going into the 11 sphere tree. So this is one, if you're, you know, you can miss some of the others because, you know, everybody knows about the, but this is your chance to find out uh, what lies at the edge of and into the abyss. And so don't miss next week's. That is, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're one of these abyss-loving people. <laughs> so don't don't miss next week, and uh, we'll be back here. It's same uh, same place and uh, thank you so much, Joe. Uh, I really, really that that was that was beautiful and informative and and it makes me it uh, it you know really gets me excited about um, about uh, doing this uh, or finding out uh, what exactly uh, somehow finding the experience. Anyway, uh, take care, be well, and good magic. Good night.